just a little word of testimony, those baptisms. How awesome was that this morning? And so those 12 baptisms, I was thinking this morning, uh, that means that the, uh, we baptized the 53rd person in the last six months. And so that is absolutely so. Makes me excited. Listen, it makes a preacher want to whip and nay-nay, right? Some of you are not coming back. All right. One of the, one of the great dangers of being a pastor is that the world you live in is often quite uh, different than the world the people you pastor are living in on a daily basis. And so uh, one of the best pieces I received, uh, advice I received early in ministry was uh, pastoring to understand that not everyone lives in the church, not everyone thinks about the church 24-7 like you do, and so you need to teach and preach and lead in that context. And so I do understand that. I have tried to be mindful of that, but having said that, I cannot help but continue to believe that there are a large number of people who very often wonder, what would be a great gift for Pastor Brad? <laughs> you see something fantastic advertised on TV, you think of me. You're out for a great meal, getting a, uh, just a great time, wonderful food, you ponder getting me a gift card. You make your Christmas list and my name is the, above the names of your children and your grandchildren. But I think the reason that those common and persistent thoughts rarely turn into action is because many people are just simply unsure. After all, uh, what would be an appropriate gift for the most interesting man in the world? And so, I want to help you out this morning, alright? All of my life, I have wanted a metal detector. And I don't mean one from Radio Smack. Like, I want one that takes years of financing to pay off. That's the kind of instrument I'm looking for. I like the whole idea of treasure hunting. Uh, I like history. And if those two things ever got married and had a baby, it would be a metal detector is what they would have. And so uh, I've always wanted one of those. So if you ever go to the beach and you see people around, I'm just fascinated by all the things they're doing and what they're finding. Uh, I love the national treasure movies. I love vintage stuff. Our, our basement is <laughs> decorated in all this old sports stuff. None of it is valuable. My wife often says, did you bring home more junk? And I tell her, I said, listen, it's not that it's valuable. And I said, it didn't cost that much. We can't buy groceries this week. I said, but I said, it is the thrill of the hunt. Just finding that. I love the whole idea discovering things that at one time someone loved and it was something they just cherished. And then somehow it got discarded and had little value until someone else came along and discovered it and ascribed value to it once again. I love the whole uh, idea of all of that, finding something that's a treasure. Is there anything greater? Uh, than putting on some pants you haven't worn or getting out a purse you haven't had in a long time or winter's coming up and putting on a coat and reaching in the pockets and there's money in there. It is, it is just an incredible, incredible feeling. Well, in Luke chapter 15, uh, we're going to walk through a parable that reminds us about the value in pursuing things that are lost and the joy in heaven when they are found. And so let me take, invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15 uh, for the fourth message in our Tell Me a Story series through some of Jesus' parables, and I titled the message this morning, uh, Buried Treasure. And so as you're turning there, let me help set the context of a story uh, that Jesus is getting ready to tell here in Luke 15. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus ends with this phrase. He says this, He who has ears to hear, uh, let him hear. 
And he was saying that because the crowds that were following him kept growing and growing. And they were getting excited and they loved being a part of Jesus' fan club. But Jesus said, hey, listen, if you're going to follow me and, and be a true follower and not just a fan, I want you to understand there is a cost involved. And so he begins to lay out this cost. He says, now, whoever, you know, basically that phrase, who has ears to hear, let them hear. It's, it's what we would say in our culture. Uh, are you picking up what I'm putting down? And so he's wanting them to understand there is a cost in following me. Now, a large group of that following of Jesus was a group that we would call uh, tax collectors and sinners. And th those are not synonyms, by the way. I know some of you think that they are. Uh, but just a little side note about tax collectors in the Bible, because it always appears uh, that Jesus and everybody else was hating on the IRS, okay? The tax collectors in the Bibles, they were Jews. And uh, they were working, though, for the Romans, who, who everyone hated. And so what would happen is their own people, the other Jews, would say, you're, you're a traitor. Uh, you've sold us out and you, you've found a way to, to uh, get the Romans off your back because you're working for them and you're collecting taxes and all along the way you're, you're taking advantage of us and so it's common knowledge uh, that they would uh, cheat the people they collected from. They would collect more than what was required. Uh, they, they wouldn't give as much back to the Roman government and so, so no one liked them. The Roman government didn't trust them but they needed them and then the Jews looked at them and said, listen, you're a traitor. It's your exploiting. So they were just an incredibly hated group uh, during that time. The tax collector Zacchaeus, in his confession to the Lord, uh, he, one of the things he confessed was his past dishonesty. And so when he began to follow Jesus, he said, hey, listen, there's something I have to tell you. I was a tax collector, and, and the assumption is right. I was ripping people off. And so we see this group of people are following them. In chapter 15, the Pharisees, who were the religious ruling forces of their day, incredibly legalistic, uh, that they were just beside themselves. Because what they did is they went around and they distanced themselves from all the unholy people. They would go around and tell them, here's what you're doing wrong, and here's what we're doing right, and, and here's all the laws, and you're not following any of them, and you're totally condemned, and God's favor is on it. And so they just spent all of their time pointing out people who are immoral and reminding them that, that you're not like us, and they would distance themselves from them. And here's Jesus. Now, not, not just distancing himself from him, but hanging out with him, spending time with him in relationship building environments. And so they, they just, they couldn't stand it. And so they began to make accusations and said, you know, how, how is he who he says he is? Does he not hang out with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus owns up to their accusation, defends himself uh, by telling three parables that all kind of make the same point here in uh, Luke chapter 15. He talks about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. And he spins this parable out for him. And it's reminding us that when we see people as buried treasure instead of problems to avoid, uh, how we interact with them becomes radically different. And we talked a few weeks ago, we said as Christians, we're, we're very good at getting to extremes when it comes to engaging the culture around us. Sometimes we're uh, isolationists and we just withdraw from the culture and we're no longer salt and light and all those things the scripture calls us to be. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we're antagonists. We're protesting and we're getting angry, we're holding up picket signs and all kinds of things, but we're making lots of points but very, very little difference. And so Jesus begins to talk about this, uh, challenge their thought about who, who you should be around and who you should be building relationships with. And so as we walk through these three illustrations in Luke chapter 15, I want you to see what God expects from us as treasure hunters and then what God expects of them once they are found. All right, so Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, and then we'll get uh, into verse 13 a little bit with the prodigal son here near the end, okay? So Luke chapter or 15, beginning in verse 1. And then all the tax collectors... And the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Just made the Pharisees furious. 
The Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, in their culture, sharing a meal with someone was the highest form of honor. Uh, it was saying that, that you, you know, listen, you're fine with me. And, and, and so that was, a, that was a huge, huge deal uh, that was going on in their culture, okay? And so uh, in verse 3 it says, So he spoke to them in parables, saying this. He said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So he tells us there's a lost sheep. And then he goes on and says, not only is there a lost sheep, there's a, there's a lost coin. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me. For I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so you get a lost sheep and you get a lost coin. And it, it ups the ante a little bit here. This is you get a lost son. And verse 11. And then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son, who we'll, we'll call Sean, it's in the Greek. You don't, if you don't know Greek, you don't see that. <laughs> Gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And so, uh, culturally speaking, uh, when he went to his father and said, Hey, listen, uh, I, I would love to have some money. I'd love to get my inheritance on the front. And in their culture, that was basically the equivalent of saying, You know what? Uh, I'd rather you be dead. So you're as good as dead to me. And so since you're dead, uh, let's just go ahead and exchange some, some money here. And so he gives him the money. And so he goes off and does these uh, radical things and, and, and prodigal living. And so, so here's, here's what I want you to see in this idea. Uh, I want you to see some things uh, here in the scripture, in this parable, of what God expects of us. Of what God expects of us, and then once a person is found, what God expects of them. And I'm just going to make one point about what God expects of us, because that's all that really needs to be said uh, regarding this parable. So, so here's what God expects of us as the treasure hunters uh, in this thing called missions and mission living. And so what God expects of us is to view lost people as treasure, not trouble. To view them as treasure, not trouble. And a few weeks ago, we, we talked about this idea, and I wish I knew who said it first. I would give them credit, but, but I ran across this quote and said this, the immoral people of this world are not the enemy. Uh, they are the mission field. They're, they're not the people we're trying to avoid, we're complaining about, we're getting angry about. They're, they're the people that we're running towards. They're not trouble, they're treasure. And we're to be hunting for them is what Christ calls us to. And so that's the idea he's illustrating uh, here in this passage. So, so, so what happens? When, when you lose something that has incredible value, when you view something as a treasure and you, and you cannot locate it, there are some things uh, that happen. You, you, you take all kinds of crazy risks when you think that treasure is on the other end of the journey. The reason I know that's not just because I've studied the Bible, it's because I've seen the movie Goonies. Raise your hand if you ever, hey, you guys, remember that? Like the greatest movie ever. And all this risk and all this danger, what was the payoff? Treasure. And so that's what happens when I value the treasure that is lost and needs to be found. I'm willing to do some things to get there, even if it makes me uncomfortable, all kinds of uh, 
risks that we take along the way. And so, so when we lose something that has value, when we think something has value and it's lost, there, there are some things that happen. They're, they're happening in this story. Uh, they, they happen when God calls us to take the gospel to people who don't know Jesus Christ. It happens in your own personal life. And so, so the first thing that happens when there is something that we see that has value and it is lost, first thing that happens is this, we have a heightened anxiety about it. Heightened anxiety. We, we just, we can't sleep until it's found. We don't rest until it's found. It's, <laughs> by the way, just a little public service announcement. Anytime you lose something, uh, it's not helpful to say, where's the last place you remember having it? Don't you hate when people say that? Like, if I knew that, I, it wouldn't be lost, would it, right? But there's a heightened anxiety about it. If it has value and it's lost, the, I, I've got some sleepless nights going on. Now, I'm going to share something with you that I'm not proud of. Uh, this is a little bit difficult for me to share publicly. I'm a former cat owner. Tasha talked me into getting a cat several years ago. She called it a cat. I think it was a demon. <laughs> and I tried to bargain with her that we don't need that cat. I even offered, I quoted scripture. I said, listen, let's not get a cat. Let's just buy a Ouija board. I mean, just all kinds of <laughs> negotiating. But she did what she's often done through our marriage. She physically intimidated me into doing something <laughs> I did not want to do. And so we've got this little cat. And I said, listen, it's cute, but we all know that the kittens, the problem with kittens is they grow up to be cats, all right? And so, so we got this cat, and our kids love this cat, and I'm trying to love this cat. And so, uh, so one, one night, uh, no one can find the cat. It's like, you know, four or five weeks old, a little, little bit of cat. And so we can't find the cat. And all of a sudden, uh, that, that cat had incredible value to my kids. And so there was a heightened anxiety because something they valued could not be found. And so they, they just, they start crying, they're, you know, the little, they start crying and so we, we just, uh, we, we, you know, we, we drove around, <laughs> we put up signs. I put the wrong number on the sign. I probably shouldn't tell that, but we, right, we drove around. I mean, they, they just, it was, I mean, they're just, keep driving, keep driving, you know. I'm like, listen, we've gone all over the driveway. What else do you want me to do? And so we're just, so we're, right, we're like, and so they just go to, they're just, we can't find the cat anywhere. And listen, I got to tell you, I felt bad because we, we, our house backed up to a field. And this cat was tied, and I thought, this cat's totally a goner. And so they go to bed totally, totally upset. And they said, Daddy, did our, our cat go to heaven? And I just, you know, I said, well, just pray about that. And so, <laughs> so they go to bed. And I'm sitting downstairs in our living room. We look for this cat for hours. And I'm just like, oh, this is terrible. I really do feel bad for the kids. And uh, so I'm just kind of sitting there thinking about it. All of a sudden I hear, <laughs> And from deep within our sleeper sofa, out comes this little cat. And so I open that back sliding door, and I just know. <laughs> it had value in our house. Not to me, but it had value to people that I valued. And so there was a heightened anxiety in looking for that. Why? Because it had value. Raise your hand if you've ever lost your child somewhere. Just raise your hand up if you've ever lost your child. Now listen, keep your hand up, and I want you to know something. The people with their hands not up are sinfully judging us right now, okay? Like there's not a, like, you're just, you know, you're walking, you turn out they're not there, and there's not, you're convinced you're never going to see them again. All the while, they're in the middle of a clothes rack in some department store, right? But it is a sickening feeling. Why? Because our value that we ascribe to our kids, it just makes us sick to think that they're lost, and we 
could not find him. Listen, can I just tell you this morning, the point I'm making with all these stories and illustrations is simply this. It makes God sick when his children cannot be found that he's longing for and running towards. And we're sitting back and there's no anxiety on our part, never weeping over those who are lost. Listen, when we value people, we don't view them as trouble to avoid. We view them as treasure to be found. And we do whatever it takes. We run. We do not rest. Why? Because they have value in the eyes of God. And so we see this over and over and over uh, in Scripture. This is the picture we see with the lost sheep. The biblical description of those who don't know Christ is, is not unsaved. It, it, it's lost. And listen, it is an empty and hopeless feeling when, when something that you value is lost, uh, but it, like, you know, like a pet or jewelry or something like that. But it's an entirely different level of gut-wrenching when that word lost is ascribed to a person uh, that has value. And so whether the person knows or not, the Bible describes every person who does not know Jesus Christ as being lost. In Luke chapter 19, just a few chapters down in verse 10, uh, Jesus described this of himself. He said, listen, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. And so the difference uh, in this parable is that the Pharisees, they looked out on these tax collectors and they sinners, and they just said, you know what? They deserve to be lost. That they have, they have no value. They're wicked. They're immoral. They're going to get whatever's coming to them. They're not holy like us. And so whatever happens to them, if they're lost and you know, out there in all kinds of danger, they totally deserve it. And if you're here this morning, you just look at the world and the culture and the lost people around you and say, hey, listen, they get, they, they're going to get whatever they deserve. Then you're a Pharisee not a follower who has no concept of grace and this probably isn't the right church for you okay because we here we're going to value people who are lost why because god values them we're not going to view lost people as trouble to avoid we're going to look at them as treasure to be found and so we go to boston and we go to detroit in the inner city and we go to denver and the post-christian culture there and we go to guatemala and we go to kenya and we go across the county to river elementary and we go right around our neighborhoods why because lost people matter to god they're not trouble to avoid they're treasure to be found Two Pentecostals in a room full of Presbyterians. <laughs> Being lost is a helpless feeling. Listen, for a lost sheep, that doomed. Oftentimes in their culture, when, when a sheep would get lost, uh, they, they often would just say, you know what, it's as good as dead. Why? Because the sheep was, was totally helpless. It couldn't defend itself. And so it was totally doomed, had no protection, just a short amount of time before coyotes or other predators would attack and kill it. And this is the picture Jesus is painting of a person who's lost. He's saying, you, listen, you, you, don't, you don't run after an attack. Listen, you, you do everything you can. You look at through compassionate eyes and say they're totally helpless, just like a sheep when it's lost. And they're not trouble, they're treasure. And so when we view them that way, we do what treasure hunters do. Number one, we go looking for it. We go looking for it. It's exactly what happened in this parable. Look at verse 4. He says, what man of you? Having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he, what, finds it. I've got four kids. I don't share that as a statement. That's a prayer request, all right? If one of them was lost after church day, I don't go back to my wife and go, we got three more, right? You know, I don't, I don't go to my wife like, like, one of the kids is lost. Which one is it? Well, I'm like, right? 
He's saying, no, no, no. He said, there's such value there. He said, you value those things. And he said, you, you just don't sit back and say, well, I've got all these and, and we've got enough people coming to our church and, and we got you know, all those. Listen, we still run towards things that are lost. We go looking for them. Why? Because they have value. We, we don't look for things that don't have value. Have you ever seen someone frantically searching around? The last time we went on a mission trip, I lost my cell phone. I could tell you a story for a half hour long. Uh, we lost our cell phone. Kyle and Heidi and, and Tosh and I were there uh, in Boston, lost my cell phone, and we had found this phone locator, like locate your iPhone, right? And so it said it was in a, a trash can. Trash can, and so I said, Heidi, I said, uh, you're gonna have to dig through that trash can. She said, I'm not. I said, I'm your pastor. Kyle works for me. Get in the trash, all right? And so finally, we found out the reason that saying the signal was there is because our car was parked right next to it. It was locating Tasha's phone. So terrible. I felt terrible. I had to have it. We totally found it. Right after a while, we we found that. You ever see anybody searching for something like that? And you walk up to him and say, "Excuse me." You obviously have lost something. What did you lose? And they responded, a penny. No, why? Because it has such little value. But when something has incredible value, we go looking for it. And Jesus said, listen, if you value people like God values people, you don't sit back and say, we, we've got enough people coming and, and things. Listen, he said, you, when one is not there, you, you go after one which is lost until he finds it. During this week, a commentator made a great statement on this, this passage. He said this, he said, I recognize that many of us are discouraged by the culture. He said, but if we look at the world from the context of this parable, we have to acknowledge the problem of the world is, is not the world. He said, the problem of the world uh, is the, the church. He said, the problem of the world is not the sinners out there. He said, it's the saints in the church. The problem is not the bad guys out there in culture. He said, the problem is the good guys in the church who won't take the good news out there to save people who desperately need to hear it. Because nowhere in the Bible are unsaved people commanded to come to church to hear the good news. And if we stand back here waiting and trying to put on some dog and pony show to attract people in here to listen to me preach or rascal flat sing or whatever the case is, right? That's never the biblical model. He said, no, no, no. He said, when you value those people, he said, you go after them. It doesn't matter if it's across the world or across the street. And so someone asked me, they said, you know, the church has grown. And it's, you know, things are going well. And how much bigger do we want to get? A thousand of goals. And I said, listen, uh, we're going to keep running until every lost person is rescued in our circle of influence. That, that, that's my answer to that. Why? Because they have value. How effective it would have been for the shepherd to just stand out in the field, yell for his sheep. How, how you know, listen, Carl, whatever his sheep name, I don't know what a sheep's name is, right, Carl, I don't know. The sheep, it wouldn't have mattered, listen, the sheep was totally lost, helpless. How effective would it have been if the other sheep got around and said, could you, Carl's lost again. Carl's an idiot. Carl gets it. Listen, if a wolf comes and kills Carl, Carl deserves it. You know what that's like? That's us in the church complaining about people in the world and sitting in here and complaining about them instead of running towards them, looking for them. That's us calling the people in the world trouble to avoid when God calls them treasure to be found. That's what we see over and over uh, in this passage. And so if something is, is lost, we, we go looking for it. Now, uh, when we go looking for it, there is a cost involved in looking for it. There's reward and there's risk. And so uh, what happens? We see two things we risk. Number one uh, is, is getting attacked. One of the risks is getting attacked. And so listen, in verse 4, when it says this, 
Oh, what many of you, uh, having a hundred sheep, lose one of them, does not leave the 99 and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So inherent in going after that sheep, uh, the thing that was hunting the sheep, the thing he's trying to protect the sheep from, he very well could have become the hunted. And so as you begin to pursue after people who are living on the margins of society, when you begin to do that, listen, you sometimes are setting yourself up for persecution. But I promise you, the risk is worth the reward. And so we risk getting attacked. And secondly, what happens when we pursue something? Number one, we give it, or number two, we give it priority. We give it priority. In the case of the woman and the coin, everything was set aside and Till she found it. Look at verse 8 in chapter 15. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not? She, she lights a lamp. They wouldn't like flip it on a switch in their house. She, she sweeps the house and search carefully until she finds it. She didn't sit back and go, I still got nine coins, what's the big deal? She gave it priority. Her shopping had to wait. Her meal preparation was postponed. The women of the well, they've gotten to the well in their culture and have fellowship and why they wash the laundry, all those things totally set aside because their one consuming focus was that lost coin, no matter how much time it took her. And so when something has value, we give it priority. Now, when we look at priority in our, in our culture, things that we value, listen, we, we give them time and we give them money. If you've got a child and you want that child to be an incredible student, a brilliant mind, get an academic scholarship, listen, you give them time, you make sure that you give them, uh, you know, attention to make sure they have the right environment, you help them along, you may even give it some money, invest in a tutor, ACT prep, or all those kinds of things. Why? Because you value that. If you have a child who's an athlete and, and you want them to uh, get a scholarship or very professional sports, whatever the case is, you know what? You, you give an incredible amount of time traveling around the country, spending an incredible amount of money. Why? Because you value that. And so in our culture, the things we give our money to and the things we give our value to are the things that really are important uh, in our lives. And so, so let me just lean into you just a little bit. And I'm not being harsh. Let me just lean into you a little bit. Uh, listen, we need to give our time and our money to missions. Uh, it, it's like pulling teeth to get people to go on a mission trip in our church. And so you know what my goal is for next year? Is that we become a tithing church where 10% of our total receipts give to missions and 10% of the people coming go out for missions. And so we're like halfway there, a little less than half, right? Why? Because we value people in Detroit who don't know Jesus. Because we value people in Guatemala who don't know Jesus. Because we value people in Boston that don't know Jesus. Because Jesus values those people too. And I love the prayer that says this, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. And so we see a lost sheep, go after it. We see a lost coin, give it every resource I have until it's found. The third thing we see in this is a lost son. Now, here's what's interesting. When I read the story of the prodigal son, we don't see anywhere in the text that the father goes looking for him. You got a sheep? Leave everybody. Go get the sheep. You got a coin, inanimate object? Just stop everything. Coin's lost. Now you got a person, and the father in the prodigal son's story represents God himself, and God doesn't go looking for people. I mean, how do, we, how do we reconcile that? We're going to look at it here in just a minute. So, so I told you what God expects of us. Here's what God expects of them if they're going to be found. Look at verses 11 and 12, the story of the prodigal son. Verse 11, then he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that 
falls to me. So he divided them to his livelihood. And then again, so in verse 11 and 12, we see uh, he expressed his desire. And then in verses 13 through 19, he expresses his need. Not many days after, the youngest son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. When he spent all there, there rose a severe famine in the land, and he began to lie in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent himself into his fields to feed swine. And he, he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he acknowledges there in verse 17 that he's in desperate need. That is a tangible reminder to us that no one reaches out for the Father's grace until they're honest about their own need for it first. And so there are two implications for us. First, the church that is afraid to preach that people are lost and on their way to a Christless eternity is not helping people. It's hurting them because apart from the unawareness of the bad news, there's no need for the good news. You see, there was, this son encountered some bad news. I'm out here. I'm eating with the pigs. This is a terrible situation. So when a church says, you know what? We love people. That's why we, you know, we don't tell people they're in a dangerous situation spiritually. Uh, listen, when, when someone is driving off a cliff, you've got two choices. You can smile and wave and have them say as they drive over the cliff, what a nice person. Or you can flail your arms and do whatever it takes to warn them that they're headed towards danger. Listen, Liberty Heights Church, let's be a church that flails our arms for people who are driving off the cliff of a Christless eternity. Amen? Let's not worry about what do people think, what are they going to say. Let's warn people and tell them about Jesus over and over and over again. And so the first implication of us is that there has to be an awareness of their situation. He would have never ran back to the Father in that incredible reunion had he not come to himself in verse 17 and said, whoa, my situation is hopeless. And then secondly, what we see is this. Our job is to look for broken people, not break them. You can't beat people with the Bible into breaking them. Repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're just looking for people who come to themselves and go, there, there has to be more. I can't keep going on this way. I can't, I, can't, I can't do it any longer. We're looking for people like the son in verse 17 who say, whoa, 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 I'm lost. And the, the servants have it better than I do right now. Here's the good news. You don't have to look too far and too hard to find broken people in your life. So you look for a sheep and you look for a coin, but, but not a son. What's up with that? Because the father knew this, that had he rescued the son from every consequence, had he walked behind him like the helicopter parents we see today and cleaned up every mess that Johnny and Sally made, the son would have never realized he was in a mess that he couldn't get out of and run to the father. He had to let him come to himself. The son had to experience repentance before he could experience the joy of his father's grace. I've got a book in my office. I read it last year. It's, it's a fascinating book. And the book is called, uh, it's called The Unexpected Journey. And it's all about people who came to faith in Christ from all different backgrounds. Uh, some of them were Muslims. Some of them were involved in witchcraft. Uh, some of them were atheists. I mean, just, just all these things. They had two things in common. One, the thing they had in common is they were incredibly uh, unlikely to ever find Jesus. 
So that was one thing they all had in common. Here's the second thing they had in common. Every single one of them, every single one of them gave testimony and said from a human perspective, what was the most influential thing that caused you to want to receive Christ? Every single one of them said this. They said it was a Christian who loved me deeply. It was a Christian who didn't, even though I was involved in witchcraft and I was an atheist and I was a Muslim, they didn't look at me as a trouble to avoid. They looked at me as a treasure to be found and they just kept digging and digging and digging and loving on me all the while. Why do we arrange our money and time? Why do we risk getting attacked, persecuted? Why not just hold up in our houses and churches? Why do we run towards lost people instead of running away from them? I'll show you why, and then we're done. Look at verse chapter 15 again. Here's why we do all those things. Here's why we do missions. Here's why we push people to get baptized and run towards them with that. Here's why we go all over the world to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's why. Look at verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. What? Rejoicing. We do it because of verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. We do it because of verse 7. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. We do it because of verse 9. And when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. We do it because of verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence. We run, and we do not rest, because heaven rejoices. It's that simple. Heaven rejoices like a man with a metal detector finding buried treasure. And so as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to push you unapologetically to give away your money to reach people for Jesus Christ. You say, I don't like that. I don't care. It's worth it. I'm going to push you to go out and go on a mission trip over and over and over. I'm going to push you to not rest in the comfortable seats. Why? Because we run, we do not rest. Why? Because heaven rejoices. It's that simple. I like what one old country preacher said. He said, he said how do you know if your ministry has been a success? He said, well, it's real simple. He said, if I go to heaven with my tongue hanging out and my pockets empty, I won. And I don't know what you came here today looking for, but I do know that if you're here, God is looking for you. And he will not rest until you are found because in his eyes, you are not a problem to be fixed. You're a treasure to be discovered. And so we run. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then I want you to know here this morning, clearly the scripture is teaching us, God is looking for you. You are not a person or a problem that God is avoiding. You are a treasure that God is looking for. And I want you to know here this morning, no matter how far from God you are, I want you to know there's grace for your situation. 
I want you to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins. I don't care how bad your sins are. I don't care how recent they are. I don't care how ashamed of them you are. Christ died for you. God showed his love towards you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And so right in your seat this morning, you can pray and confess your sins. You can ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. You can pray and receive him today as your personal Lord and Savior. And God will look at you this morning. It's treasure that has been found. If you would pray and receive Christ right now in your seat, listen, all of heaven rejoices. Would you do that right now? Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I, I can't describe my life as one who's looking for buried treasure. I've gotten a little focused on me and my family and my kids, and, and I can't tell you the last time I had anxiety over a lost person. I'm going to ask you to pray something right now. I'm going to ask you to pray this. I'm going to ask you to say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. God, help me to come and view people as you view them, not as trouble to avoid, but treasure that needs to be found. God, help me not to rest and help me to run because heaven rejoices. Father, I pray today above all things that Liberty Heights would not be known for a church with an incredible building or an incredible location. That Liberty Heights Church would not be known for its singing or its preaching or its children's ministry or its youth ministry. God, that above all else, Liberty Heights would be known as a church that runs towards people, not away from them. God, that we're known as a church that views people, lost people, people with addictions, people with broken marriages, people in sexual immorality, that we look at them not as trouble to avoid, but treasure to be found. And so, Father, I pray, collectively, you would break our heart for what breaks yours. We would not rest, but we would run because heaven rejoices. And for every buried treasure that's found, we would give you the glory. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.